0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 183 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on today's episode, I am so excited to have as my guests the two people most responsible for making A24's The Florida Project my favorite film of 2017 so far. The writer-director, Sean Baker, previously best known for making the acclaimed 2015 film Tangerine using iPhones, and then afterwards, the actress Brooklyn Prince, who is seven years old now but was just six when she delivered a performance for Baker that, for my money, is as excellent as any that I've seen in a movie this year. The film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival back in May, played again at the Toronto International Film Festival in September, just screened again at the New York Film Festival, and opened in select theaters on Friday, garnering a 97% favorable rating on RottenTomatoes.com and doing impressive box office. Trust me. You'll be hearing a lot more about the film, Baker, and Prince this season, so this is a great opportunity to get to know all of them a little bit better. But first, for our opening segment, recapping the goings-on of the past week in the awards race, I was thrilled to be joined at the Empire Hotel in New York by my friend and distinguished colleague David Rooney, a film critic and the chief theater critic for The Hollywood Reporter. David Rooney, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. On Saturday night, we reached the midpoint of the 55th New York Film Festival. It's America's second oldest film festival and certainly one of its most prestigious, hosted by the Film Society of Lincoln Center in the various venues of Lincoln Center. Quite a few of these entries in the lineup played at other festivals, including Berlin and Cannes. You've reviewed some of them elsewhere, but I know you've been seeing a lot here. And of the world premieres here, the first one was opening night. This was the Richard Linklater film, Last Flag Flying, so... Let me ask you about that one first.
1: I have to say that was a big disappointment for me. I'm a huge Linkletter fan. I think he's been on such a role lately. I love Linkletter. I love what he does. I think his eccentricities as a filmmaker have been just wonderful to watch over the years. And I thought the combination of Linkletter coming in to do a quasi-sequel to a Hal Ashby film was just genius. Right. Because he's probably as close as anybody working in contemporary film to the spirit of Hal Ashby and the new Hollywood. I'm talking about Hal Ashby in his good decade, the 70s, not the terrible stuff he was doing in the 80s. And the movie that
0: that you're referring to would be The Last Detail. The Last Detail, which I'm saying. But somewhere
1: along the line they made the decision, let's not make it a sequel, let's change the names, let's make it something else, and yet it is a sequel in every sense Mm -hmm. in that they follow the same trajectory of the the characters in the first movie. They are basically still those characters even with different Mm -hmm. names. So I guess they just didn't want people to think, oh, well, we haven't seen that film from 1973, so we're not going (laughs) to see this new one. But I don't think it helps the film. I think the film is sort of stuck. It doesn't really have much of an identity. It didn't have a very letter feel to it. It felt very written. I thought that the comedy between the guys among the three guys was was really forced, Brian very Cranston, strained. Lawrence Fishburne and Steve Carell. Yeah, and they're all fine. Yeah. You know, I think Cranston is a little broad and over the top, trying uh, to do as Nicholson. Yeah, yeah, Carell and Fishburne are fine in very restrained, muted performances. But you, if you see Battle of the Sexes, you see Steve Carell doing something much more interesting there, and certainly in restrained roles like in Foxcatcher, he's right. been much more impressive. I just thought there was a disconnect here with the director and the material that it should have been a slam dunk, and yet it felt to me like a very meh kind of film. It didn't leave me with much
0: at all. And we've spoken about the fact that I don't know if it's just inherently at this festival, maybe on an opening night, audiences are predisposed to be a little bit more polite or whatever. It seemed to play okay on opening night, but that does not – I agree with you that I don't see this going much further than – this festival. But what's your take on that? Because I think you're very much in the mainstream as far as what critics felt about it. And, and that was not very... Warm. Although
1: I'm sure it will have its supporters among critics too. I think that there are, there are critics who like it. Mm-hmm. So my indifference to the film is probably not going to be everybody's. I do think that allowing yourself to think oh well the the opening night audience of the New York Film Festival reaction was great so therefore the movie is going to go over gangbusters in in theaters i right. think that's naive right. and new york is probably less of a love fest than some place like toronto right. where right. they're also canadians right. so they're nice by nature <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and that's true. um but you know it's very easy to get an audience worked up by right. having a bunch of actors they, they know from film and television right. in them in the theater, having the director in the theater you're you're in there with the creative team. Right. There's this sense of excitement. You've come in, you've kind of endured the late start to the red carpet and all of that. So there's an urge to have a good time. And there are festivals like Toronto that are notorious for that. Sundance, the premiere screenings, also have that kind of buzz about them. And then there are other festivals like Berlin and Cannes where things are a little bit cooler. You might actually get a boo. (laughs) Yeah, unless you're in the director's fortnight where they love everything.
0: Right. (laughs) Okay, so speaking of Cannes, let's talk about a movie that first was unveiled there, then... Went to Toronto, where I saw it, and then came to New York, where it went over very well again and now opened on Friday and is at 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. People seem to be loving it. It's certainly one of my favorites, and it's the subject of the interview that comes after our conversation here, and that is The Florida Project. It just feels like it's it's one of these movies that, without having very many stars at all—I guess Willem Dafoe's the only one that people will know— It's not an obvious one for people to go and see, but when they see it, they seem to be falling
1: in love and it's picking up momentum along the way. Do you agree with that? I do. Look, I'm I'm a big fan of Sean Baker, the director. I think he is a terrific filmmaker. I loved Starlet, his little movie about a a kind of a quasi-Harold and Maud relationship (laughs) between a a young female L.A. porn star and an 80-year-old woman. And then I really adored Tangerine, his film about transgender prostitutes in L.A.
0: Made on an iPhone. Made on an iPhone for (laughs) $1.50.
1: And it's, you know, a movie with such heart. It's such a great girlfriend movie. (laughs) Right, right. And I actually am in the minority of thinking Florida Project is not quite as good as Tangerine. Okay. Okay. But I love the way it looks. It, It has such beautiful life and colour to it. I mean, shot on 35 mil. I think the stuff with the kids is just phenomenal. Yeah. The heart of the movie with those kids is so great. He is obviously incredibly gifted at working with, with non-professional actors. For me, the big hole in the film was the mother character who is sort of like a wannabe Courtney Love train wreck, <laughs> and I just don't think she has the acting range or the nuance to carry it. So whenever anything more demanding than screaming and yelling and having a <laughs> meltdown, Happens, I think she kind of the scene deflates a little bit. I also think the movie is too long, but it got such crazy hosannas from everybody it can that, of course, they picked it up and thought we're not going to touch it because everybody loved it, and that's fair enough. But I I think the movie is you know there's no reason for that movie to go beyond two hours. It's it just feels like it's kind of treading water for a lot of the midsection. I want to ask you about that while while you bring that up because it seems like a lot of movies this year are bloated.
0: Why is you know, Blade Runner two hours and 45 minutes or something. Why is three billboards? uh, Movies that are really something in some cases very good, but just, it just feels
1: unnecessary. I think even- Even the Linkletter film, which we mentioned, Last Flag Flying, that movie is a very long, it's two full hours and it feels very long. It feels like a 90 minute movie that is just kind of ambling for half Same with uh, another one that was here that we'll
0: come to in a moment, the Meyerowitz stories, new and selected, which just in its title itself is a bit pretentious, but then goes on for, for, I think, about two hours as well. It just seems like people, I don't know, suddenly everybody's either got director's cut or I
1: don't, I don't know. Well, I think this comes in trends and waves. Yeah. I know, I remember there was a year or two at Cannes in Berlin where we were all suddenly so gratified that all the films were 80 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Please bring
0: it back. Yeah, it,
1: it, It's the ultimate <laughs> irony that anyone who covers film or theater you, you love film, you love theater, right. but you love it most when it's, when it's short <laughs> and you're out in 80 minutes. Well, and short, though, can mean tight, which is better. Yeah, but, but- I think that the, there has been a preponderance of, of really bloated running yes. times. I think The Square, which won the, the top prize at Cannes, which mm-hmm. is here in the New York Film Festival, mm-hmm. is three-quarters of it is a fantastic movie. But it's a fantastic movie that makes its points. It makes very salient, very clever, sardonic points right. about the art world. And then it goes on to kind of make them again and make them. <laughs> and, and eventually it kind of dilutes. Right. And, you know, for me, I think sometimes when a film gets a great reception at a festival, it can be the validation they're looking right. for in saying, no, we're not going to cut it. We're going to run it at two hours, 20 minutes or right. whatever.
0: Interesting. Um, well-
1: Let's talk about some of the other ones that we saw first that, you know, you may have seen it
0: another fest before this, but which have come here and sort of had to face the largest press corps that they've perhaps had to face yet. And you're around a lot of these critics here in New York. There are a lot of them still there. I guess my point being, you can sink or swim here and it, it can kill a movie if, if Critics turn on you here. So others that have come here after being at other festivals, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name, which played through the roof at this festival. Noah Baumbach's aforementioned The Meyerowitz Stories, which played pretty well with this crowd. But that's a little troubling because I would think this might be the most receptive crowd that that's ever going to find. And, and then the centerpiece night screening, Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck, which comes via Roadside and Amazon. Amazon had the opening night with Last Flag Flying had the centerpiece with Wonderstruck, and will have the closing night with Wonder Wheel. I don't know how they pulled that hat trick, but anyway, let's talk about those three because those are sort of the highest profile
1: carryovers from the first half of the festival. What's your take on those? I'm a fan of Wonderstruck, and I know not everybody is. It was very divisive in Cannes. A lot of people, you know, everyone everyone in the film world goes to a ton Hayden's movie yes. excited to see it. yes. But I think a lot of people wanted Carol, too. You know, a lot of people wanted the muted, emotionally restrained film. And Todd Haynes has never made a movie about kids before. And I just found that gave the film a vitality, a magic, if you will, that, that I thought was quite unique in his body of work. And don't get me wrong. I love, I love his earlier films. Yeah. Safe is one of my favorite films yeah. of the past 20, 30 years. Yeah. And Far From Heaven is another great yeah. movie. I mean, I think he's Terrific. made some wonderful films. But I found this, you know, a really enchanting movie. And I don't use that word lightly. It's such a twee kind of way to describe a movie. But I think there is a real magic of childhood, magic of the movies, magic of creating things. The stuff in the museum I found just absolutely hypnotic. All of that beautiful camera work and in the Natural History Museum. I think he uses location. He uses He uses the the wonderful Hall of American history or whatever it's yeah. called with those amazing dioramas. I've never seen those on film used in such a way. And it gave the film just this magic other dimension that I really responded to. I also think the young deaf actress playing the lead, Millicent Simmons, is it's just such a natural. Yeah. She felt to me like A silent movie actress. And I love that he's referencing Lillian Gish in The Wind and all these things. You know, there were things about the movie I found just completely enchanting. And I also think it has this sort of puzzle-like atmosphere that is very in keeping with the author of the novel. Much more so than the Scorsese film of Hugo by the same novelist. I found very twee and precious. Whereas this, I actually found... Again, you know, I'm going to use words I hate. Captivating, heartwarming, all those things. The movie, I found it quite affecting. Okay, so how
0: about Call Me By Your Name? This one got about a minute ovation here when it played here on Tuesday night. Again, as you say, that may be somewhat inflated by having the director and stars in the house. But I think this one really does seem to be clicking at all the stops along the way
1: since, I believe, Sundance, certainly in Toronto, and now again here. Well, that's a film that, you know, uh, among these films we're talking about, aside from Mudbound, which is also in the festival, that's probably the film I saw earliest this Mm -hmm. year at Sundance. Mm -hmm. And it's the film that has stayed with me more than anything else. Mm. I think it's an absolutely ravishing movie. I don't recall a movie about first love, particularly gay first love, Mm -hmm. that is so in tune with every feeling, every emotion. You feel everything that's happening with those characters on the screen. I think the performance of Timothee Chalamet is just, something extraordinary. And whatever people's response to the movie in New York, I find it hard to imagine that it wasn't genuine because the final shot of him in that movie, which is just daringly sustained beyond the point where most filmmakers would sustain a single shot, is one of the most beautiful endings on a film I can recall. Again, you know, we're talking about a very long film, takes its time, it really kind of luxuriates in the ivory towerness of all that right. early stuff in Italy with this very artsy family right. and this incredible house. But, you know, it all pays off in the end. I, I I also loved the novel, and I think that he captures the novel very well. In that case, um, I guess it was James Ivory that adapted it, but now
0: directed by Luca. And there's a whole, I guess, history of whether at one time they were going to co-direct it or whatever, yeah. but
1: it's certainly one that seems to move everyone who sees it. I mean, it. people... People piss all over James Ivory because of Merchant Ivory and think it's just kind of starchy British costume dramas with (laughs) Helen Bonham Carter. Right. But, you know, I think James Ivory has done some terrific work over the years. And think about movies like Remains of the Day by Katsuo Ishiguro, who just won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and Howard's End. Howard's End is a fabulous movie. I think that, you know, he can do really great stuff. And obviously he found something in this novel that he really responded to. And it's all there on screen. I mean... An army hammer, who knew? It's it's a great performance. And, in, and even in just one monologue in
0: particular, Michael Stuhlbarg Michael who Stuhlbarg is wonderful. blows that scene away and it's might get nominated just sh- for that.
1: Also great in the shape of water.
0: Yes, yes. And and had been great. I mean, I thought he deserved some love for a serious man, but at that man. time people didn't really know who he was. So he's been a great stage actor. Yes. You, you knew you know who yeah, you yeah. guys in New York okay. So, New York Film Festival's lineup always includes a handful of films that, by the time they screen here, have become their home country's official entry into the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar race. This week, the Academy confirmed a record 92 submissions for that contest, including the first ever entries from Haiti, Honduras, Lao People's Democratic Republic, Mozambique, Senegal, and Syria. Entries that have unspooled here at the fest include Agnieszka Holland's Spore which is the Polish entry, Robin Campillo's BPM beats per minute from France, Joachim Trier's Stelma from Norway, Lucretia Martel's Zama from Argentina, and Ruben Oslin's The Square from Sweden. I do want to talk about a few of these. I, I caught up with Spore here. I know it had been at Berlin, and I think that a number of these have, have screened elsewhere. But the one that I think you've you've said you were most disappointed is here, but is not here as a Oscar submission is the Finnish film the other side of Hope?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a very strong year for foreign language films, to be honest. most other years, there are seven or eight great films by this point that we're all certain will mm-hmm. will be jostling for for attention. I do like Beats Per Minute quite a, quite a bit, the mm-hmm. Robin Campillo film from mm-hmm. France. But again, it's another one of these films that, is, is, that goes over the two-hour mark for no good reason. And the French love their bureaucracy. So <laughs> that film is meetings, meetings, meetings. Right. And, you know, it's, it's about the ACT UP organization raising AIDS awareness in the early 90s in Paris and you know, there are all these meetings that I think are useful up to a point, but it becomes repetitious. Mm-hmm. But where the film kicks in with the emotional relationship, I think it's incredible. Sure. It's it's a really powerful film. It seems like that may be the one to beat at this point.
0: Even as you say, it's not the deepest year, but in terms of provoking a response, that one, the square, as you mentioned, another one that may be a little longer than everybody would, than some would like. But those
1: of the foreign language films, I mean, am I forgetting others that people are really into? I don't know that there are any films that people are super excited about. I mean, the Hanukkah film is considered pretty substandard Hanukkah. Austria's happy end. Yeah, I mean, it's quite good, and who doesn't want to watch those actors? Isabelle Huppert. You know, the two that I would
0: just put into the conversation, they're not here at the New York Film Festival, but I like them, and people are going nuts in in some circles. In the Fade from Germany, which is Diane Kruger. She won Best Actress at Cannes. Another one that's too long, but powerful and in some ways, timely. And then Israel's movie Foxtrot, which has been a
1: festival favorite as well. Yeah, Foxtrot had a huge response in Venice. And then I think again in Toronto, if I'm yes, not wrong. Yes. Unfortunately, I haven't seen either of those. But, you know, to go back to the Finnish submission. Yes. I, I know we were both fans last year of The Happiest Day in the uh, Life yes. of Ali Maki. Uh, yeah. Just a beautiful little film, yeah. which the Academy in there... <laughs> obstinate stupidity, chose to shut out of the the foreign language shortlist. So it didn't end up finding an audience. It it really needed that boost. It's a tiny little film but such a jewel. And this year I think that Aki Karasmaki, who is such a distinguished filmmaker with a long and very interesting career behind him, a really unique body of work, which is sometimes dismissed by American critics I think in a kind of ignorant swipe Mm -hmm. as wannabe Jim Jarmusch. Whereas I think Jim Jarmusch would probably be the first person to admit that his films were all inspired by Aki (laughs) Karasmaghi and his whole deadpan sensibility. You know, Aki Karasmaghi was doing that long before Jarmusch started. This film in particular, The Other Side of Hope, I think is just an incredibly original and human way of looking at the Syrian refugee crisis in a way that only Charismaki could. It's so deadpan, it's so funny, so droll, but it's really got a lot of heart. I mean, it's so full of compassion. I just can't imagine anyone coming out of that film not moved by it. To have that shut out and the Finns instead selecting Tom of Finland about the gay porn artist, I mean, I grew up with Tom of Finland. uh, Tom of Finland is like Marvel superheroes to us gay boys. (laughs) (laughs) And that film is just... Okay. It's very conventional. It's kind of soft, if you will. You know, the, what made that art so revolutionary, what made it have such an impact, is kind of missing from the movie. It does have some poignant moments. It has some nice performances, but I think it's not half the movie that the Karismaki film is. I would agree,
0: and I would just say, I guess it is nice, though, to have seen in just really the last few years, starting with, uh, with Karismaki's work and then now expanding to a number of others finished film is really picking up and to have us even debating which film should have been the Finnish entry is a step in the, in the right direction, I guess. So. I think
1: there's some great stuff coming out of uh, all of Scandinavia, yes. especially Denmark, Iceland and Finland. Right. Another thing that the New York Film Festival tends to do well
0: is docs, documentaries. We've had already during the first half of the festival, Jane, the Brett Morgan documentary about Jane Goodall using footage that was, had gone missing for decades Voyeur, which is a Netflix documentary about the craziest story of Gay Talese's career. Film worker about a actor who realized his dream of working with Stanley Kubrick and then decided he didn't want to act anymore and would rather be Kubrick's assistant. Spielberg, self-explanatory. That's going to be on HBO soon. Next weekend. Next weekend. Yeah. And it was very well received here in part because at the end of the movie, they put the light on Mr. Spielberg himself which was always a kind of exciting thing. But I know there were a couple of others here that also went over that I have not yet seen, but people are into Faces Places, which Agnes Varda is here co-director and here supporting, and then The Rape of Reese Taylor. Do you have any strong feelings about any of these, David?
1: Well, I have very strong feelings about Jane. I don't get very excited about stars and famous names in theaters but sitting across the aisle from Jane Goodall in Toronto <laughs> she was like a rock star yeah, you know yeah. she's in her 80s she got up there and spoke she was so self-possessed and the audience was just ecstatic to mm-hmm. see her and that fil- that film is such a beautiful tribute to someone whose life's work just came out of a personal passion you know she had no scientific training and all of the establishment reminded her of that constantly with every new finding that she came back with about chimpanzee behavior and how it related to man's behavior and that film I mean what a treasure for that director to be just handed a hundred plus hours of this immaculate beautiful color 16 millimeter footage and I have to just tell you somebody I was talking with in Australia during the week had seen a clip from that online and said how did they get an actress who looked so much like her to play her <laughs> as a young woman? Had no idea it was a documentary. It is very high-quality the, the footage is yeah. beautiful yeah. and yeah. it looks brand new. It's, you know, there's, there's something special about, about that super-saturated look of old 16-mil footage. And For sure. it's It's obviously been kept in a very dry vault and looked after. And the fact that it was shot by the man she ended up marrying gives that film such an element of heart, and yeah. you know, she comes out of it as this incredible strong character who went off to Africa with him, and her mother accompanied her and set up a, a clinic to treat local fishermen in Tanzania. I mean, it's such a great story, and the footage is just breathtaking. Absolutely, I amazing. mean, for, for any, anyway, I'm a sucker for animal films and animal documentaries in particular if they, if they're well done. And that, to me, was just a great narrative told. You know, it had nothing to envy the best narrative filmmaking. I think that it has such a great story to tell. It
0: does. And and I just will add a little quick note and promo, which is that the composer, the legendary composer of the score for that film, Philip Glass, is going
1: to be our guest Next week. Such an emotional score, and yeah. it really adds another layer to the film. He's amazing. And sometimes I'm a little bit against that kind of yep. sonic carpeting in a movie mm-hmm. where everything almost is underscored, but it really works. It adds such a dimension to the movie, and, you know, it's a very emotional experience. For sure. What do we have to look forward to
0: now during the second half of this festival? I go back to L.A., but I know you're going to continue to be seeing a lot of movies here. In fact, I think you've just seen the first of the major films that are going to be here during the second half which this festival runs all the way through October 15th so what are some of the things that you've seen or are going to be seeing in the coming days?
1: Well Lady Bird I mean I think Greta Gerwig had co-directed a film with I think Joe Swanberg some years back but this is her first solo directing work and it's very personal it's obviously about her high school and going to college years uh, in Sacramento California I think the movie is gorgeous. You know, it It never puts a foot wrong. It's so beautifully acted. It's so well observed. It has a whole lot of what in in more vulgar hands might just be kind of self-conscious indie quirks, mm-hmm. and yet it feels very organic. I think it's, it's really beautifully directed, and I want to see more of what she does. And we should note, and
0: I know this certainly didn't hurt your response to the movie. A lot of New York theater people
1: in the movie. Loads. It's great to see actors like Stephen McKinley Henderson and Tracy Letts, who's more Chicago theater mm-hmm. than New York, yep. but Laurie Metcalf. Metcalf, who is just wonderful yeah. as Saoirse Ronan's mother, the main character's mother. Lucas Hedges, actually, just Lucas Hedges. Uh, yeah, is. Timothy Chalamet again oh, yeah. from uh, Call Me by Your Name. <laughs> right, he's having quite a year. True, and Beanie Feldstein, the the, the little sister of <laughs> Jonah Hill, who is in Hello Dolly right. at the moment on Broadway, right. and is absolutely fantastic in this as well.
0: Well, there's also, just to note, coming up in the next few days, Rebecca Miller's documentary, Arthur Miller Writer, Griffin Dunn's documentary, Joan Diddy and The Center Will Not Hold. Those are obviously two very personal documentaries, people who know their subjects quite well or knew their subjects quite well. Dee Reese's Mudbound, all of these carryovers from other festivals. And then a world premiere to close out the fest on the 15th. That's going to be Woody Allen's latest Wonder Wheel starring Kate Winslet. And well, they may have started to tease that, I know we can't really get into that, so we'll leave that for now. And I guess let's let's just close with a, a question I have to ask you. I'd be remiss to not ask you while we're together since the Tonys, and I, I was last here kind of trying to see the the best of what of what you see throughout the year. What has been the exciting new stuff here? I think there's a new Boston town, right for Broadway. Springsteen. Oh yeah. Well,
1: I'm seeing seeing the Springsteen show on Tuesday and I, I can't wait. Yeah. You know, Springsteen was kind of my high school music. Oh really? I okay. remember somebody coming to school with with Born to Run album in there, and maybe it was Greetings from Ashbury yeah, yeah. Park in their in their school bag, and <laughs> and we passed it around and read the lyrics and things. It was a big deal. And you know, I have to say, I followed his career less closely. Mm-hmm. In more recent years, but you hear those songs again, and it just takes you right back. So he's, I think, following very much the arc of the the autobiography that he published this yes. year, also called Born to Run, and doing songs that are very personal to him about his upbringing and his, you know, his marriage and his early relationships, all of that. So I can't wait for that. And that ticket's now got to be—it's got to have surpassed Hamilton and everything else, right? Yeah, well, it's it's sixteen weeks, and yeah. you know, he's playing nine hundred seat theater as opposed to 30,000-seat arenas. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of diehard Springsteen fans out there that snapped up those tickets the minute they went on sale. And has there been anything else great since the Tonys? Uh, You know, I've been in Australia for a month on the festival trail. I haven't seen a lot. The only thing I've seen is Prince of Broadway. Mm -hmm. I liked it more than a lot of people, but it's a compilation show. It doesn't really create a very compelling through line or give you much insight other than giving you isolated great numbers. I think there's a lot of good stuff coming in this season, so there's a lot that I'm really looking forward to. I mean, who doesn't get excited about a huge full-scale revival of My Fair Lady and Carousel, two of the great American yes. musicals, Three Tall Women, the Edward Albee play. I've, I've seen Glenda Jackson on stage in, in London in the 80s, but, you know, she was in politics for yeah. 25 years, so this so is so a big exciting. return yeah. for her to Broadway. after uh, She did King Lear in London last yes. year. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff coming up that I'm... Interesting. I mean, I know it sounds geeky, but I'm super psyched for the Harry Potter plays. I think they're going to be huge. John Tiffany is a great director. I think the effects are going to be amazing. And then is Frozen this season or next season? Frozen is this season in the spring. They've redone the whole St. James, right? Yeah. And, you know, it'll be a big Disney show. It'll be a big princess show. But, you know, bring it on. Those kind of blockbusters keep the business alive. And I think Disney always does a smart job with it. Michael Grandage is certainly an interesting director. And yeah. Christopher Oram, his designer, I think, is, and his partner also, is, I think, extremely talented. So I can't wait to see what they do with it. I know they'll be tweaking around with it since they had their tryout engagement yes. in Denver. All right. A lot to look forward to. Thank you so much, David Rooney.
0: All right. And now for my interviews with Sean Baker and Brooklyn Prince. Over the course of our time together at the Lowe's Regency Hotel in New York, I discussed a wide range of topics with Baker, who is an unbelievably youthful-looking 46, and then with Prince, who, again, is a very youthful 7. Among them, why Baker is, and since his days at NYU, Tish has been, drawn to stories about people living on the margins of society, and tends to cast his films with people who, prior to working with him, have not been actors before. Why Baker turned to iPhones for Tangerine and a subsequent short film But despite his immense success with those, avoided using iPhones on the Florida Project, save for the immensely powerful final scene. How things ranging from the Little Rascals to the recent economic recession influenced the Florida Project, which Baker co-wrote with his frequent collaborator Chris Bergosh. How Prince wound up landing the role of Mooney in the Florida Project and what it was like for her to shoot it over 35 days in the summer of 2016 with the veteran actor Willem Dafoe, as well as another adult and several kids who had never acted before, what she drew upon for some of the more emotional moments that her character has to endure, and who she hopes the film will benefit, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Sean, thank you so much for doing this, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. We always just begin with a basic, where were you born and raised, what did your folks do for a living?
2: I was born in Summit, New Jersey, raised in Central Jersey. My parents, my father is a patent trademark lawyer and my mother was a pre-K teacher, Mm -hmm. now retired.
0: And was film an interest from the beginning or where did that come along? I know you wound up at NYU. Where along the line did it really become a passion? It was very early on.
2: It was first grade, I believe. It was my mother actually is responsible. She brought me to the (laughs) local library and I believe, Milburn, New Jersey, and this is way back, so this ages (laughs) me here, but it was when they were actually showing like 16 millimeter loops of old films. And it happened to be they were showing clips from the Universal Monster films. I Uh, remember, and it just, even from first grade, I remember those images that are seared onto my, you know, into my brain. The image of well, they showed clips from Frankenstein, Dracula and the mummy, but it was something about James Wales, Frankenstein and the windmill scene. Mm-hmm. They were showing the windmill scene. And I just, those images of him looking through the, you know, the internal mechanism yeah. of the windmill just stuck with me, just That's stuck right. with me. And the next day I was like, I want to make films. I want to make movies. And I went to my first grade teacher and I said, I'm no longer interested in doing
0: the construction work. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be a <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> and so I guess, is there back as, as we will recall the days mm-hmm. before? digital cameras oh, and all yeah. that stuff what would yeah. what did a kid do to, to foster that interest well it's that it's the cliche it's i did
2: all of the super eight little home movies up until vhs was mm-hmm. it came out in the market then we got our vhs deck and i was shooting throughout you know junior high and then high school i i was making my home movies and then becoming I think I was like the the head or president of the AV club, of That's course, did my uh, yearbook, my video yeah. yearbook for high school and actually applied as like an early admission to NYU because I just knew that was where this I wanted Tish. to go. Yes. Okay. Undergrad to school of the arts, film and television. My heroes at the time, around 17 years old, mm-hmm. it was all about Spike Lee and yeah, Jarmusch. Okay. They were both the heroes out of NYU. Great. So I wanted to follow in their footsteps. Yeah.
0: And you get in, you go there. What were the biggest takeaways of those? I guess it is. For, it's for four year. Yeah. And what's the reason that is such a great institution, at least as it applied to your case?
2: I mentioned Spike Lee and Jarmouche, but I was also very, I was a fanboy. I was a cinephile, but I was very influenced by Hollywood. I went there wanting to make the next Die Hard or RoboCop. Really? Right. And it wasn't until it was just being in Manhattan. Yeah. Of course, there was a great cinema studies program, but we could only take one or two courses per year like one per semester. So I wasn't really getting the cinema studies that I wanted. But being in Manhattan, I had access to retrospective theaters, obviously the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Anthology Film Archives, Kim's Video. And I think the Waverly Theater, it was like the last year. It was there before it switched. And I think it was just my, almost my, my self-education. I was, I found a VHS tape of, Eric Romer's Claire's Knee over at that Clock Tower library on Mm -hmm. 6th Avenue and 8th Street. And there was something there that even at the time when I was watching that film, there was something that was telling me, oh, I am switching my perspective here in terms of what I'm interested in. And I made it a goal to learn more about foreign cinema because growing up before the Internet, you know, you're only the only access you have when you're a suburban kid mm-hmm. and I was only thirty minutes out in Jersey, mm-hmm. but the only access were basically the classics and mm-hmm. anything that, you know, were released in theaters but got a lot of attention. So so you you know, of course I knew the the famous Truffaut and Fellini films, et cetera, but it wasn't until I got into Manhattan where I was able to get a lot of uh, access to, to a lot more world cinema. And it was at that point that I said, I'm gonna I'm going to definitely explore and study French new wave. And that led to Italian neorealism. And it just happened to be at the time that Mike Lee's naked hit yeah. cinemas and that opened up the world to British social realism going back and, and and then exploring the kitchen sink dramas. Yeah. And then and then I have to tell you, and it's kind of embarrassing, but Cassavetes came a little late. It wasn't until like junior or senior year where I think I went to finally see a woman under the influence and just, I was like I got to explore all of Cassavetti's work <laughs> and realize there was such, you know, the ma- there was a master of the type of cinema that I loved here in the states. So, so yeah, that was really those 4 years of just ex- exploration and absorption.
0: Well, every it's clearly those influences are clearly visible in in your more recent films that have gotten the widest audience, but before yes. Tangerine and before the Florida Project, you were churning out some other Films that now I think people like me are very anxious Mm. to go back and check out. And I just wonder if we can go through a few of those so that just if you can give a little... Idea of how they came about, what they were, why yeah. you made them. Sure, um, it seems like the the first one was it a, a thesis film? At NYU? no, it wasn't a thesis film. But I was writing it during my senior okay. year, and then I was lucky
2: enough to get a job that allowed me to write on the side, yeah. and it was also a job. It was at a publishing company doing AV work that landed me a commercial, very small commercial in the big picture, but it was at the time it was like, it put $50,000 in my pocket. So that went directly into making my first film, which was shot on 35. I was a very, I was very young. I was, it was, it's a young movie. There's no doubt about it. Which title is it? It's called four letter words. Okay. And at the time it was, it went to actually, it took four years to make shot on 35, finally went to South by Southwest in 2000. And years uh, after you started on it. Well, yeah, we we shot it in 96 and it went to South by in 2000. I had almost given up on it. Yeah. It was a Rashomon sort of mystery train influenced nonlinear story. That was a social realist look at guys in the suburbs. So imagine a social realist Kevin Smith (laughs) film. But, you know, I'm still happy about it. i mean i look at it as like definitely it's not a great film it's not a great film but it's something that at least is like it i think it has my signature and and thank god you know south by really did seem to like it and eric Cohn at IndieWire reviewed it recently gave it an a minus well, all all right. so i'm like okay maybe it's not, not that bad, so bad right. but that was something that i i happened to and i don't know if you know this but i was a co-creator of a television show called greg the bunny
0: i do and also yeah. it's Reincarnation later on, yes. which was Warren really, the I mean, Ape on MTV. Yes,
2: yes, but it had several incarnations okay. on, from IFC to Fox, back to IFC, and then that last incarnation on MTV, okay. which was a spinoff. But now that show sort of helped me over the years because it wasn't a big show; we weren't getting rich by in any way. But it what did it did pay rent, and it allowed me to not have to get a nine to five, and it also helped me pay for those first three films. Yeah. So that reason probably that four-letter words took four years is because of the fact that I was working on Greg the Bunny.
0: Greg the Bunny goes on IFC, I guess, in 2002. By 2004, I think. was No, there? I think
2: we're earlier. earlier. Earlier
0: on? Yeah, we were in the 90s. Wow. Yeah, yeah. In the
2: late 90s, we hit uh, around 97, 98. We were the first we were on the first season of IFC. Wow. So it was us and John Pearson.
0: Okay. And John Lurie had a show. Okay. Fishing with John. Well, it was that that enabled you then, I guess, would the next film have been takeout? Yes. Okay.
2: So so basically, because four-letter words didn't take off and Greg the Bunny was on and off again, I decided to go and learn nonlinear editing, just in case, mm-hmm. you know, just to know the avid in and out, mm-hmm. just in case I had to fall back on my editing skills mm-hmm. to, to to pay rent. And I met Shi Qing Zhou at the the New School, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful school, wonderful institution. She was there for grad work and we met and we clicked and it was at the same time that uh, Dogma 95 had kicked in mm-hmm. and the celebration and Lars von Trier's The Idiots had a tremendous influence and it was like, here, you can actually make a feature film that will be accepted by the public mm-hmm. and critics on standard definition video. <laughs> and we happened to have a PD 150 you know, mini DV camcorder. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. We have no money, but we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And we made Takeout in 2003, the two of us, for $3,000. Wow. Our our third crew member was basically our main actor, Charles Jang, wonderful actor. And he was carrying our tripod for us <laughs> sometime. And I mean, sometimes. And it was basically a really, really down and dirty gorilla style, you know, completely indie, 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 $3,000 feature. But to tell you the truth, it's I, might some people even say it's our best my best wow. film it, because it really was off, it was re- it came from a very organic place we just wanted to make a film without we just wanted to break into the festival circuit and into the film world and so we made this thing it went to slam dance mm-hmm. but then it had a nice run overseas and landed a distributor eventually Kino Lorber picked it up, which yeah. you know, Kino Paul Great
0: Classic Yeah.
2: Exactly prestigious titles yeah.
0: that and I respect the hell out of that label and so it was an honor and And now can you remind me a little bit about so it seems like I think if I remember correctly, Takeout and Prince of Broadway, which came four years later, was released four years later, both dealt with undocumented immigrants struggling to kind of make it in America, right? Yes. And that was the beginning of what's been a thread through, I think, all of your work of people on the margins of society trying to just sort of stay above water, right? Yes, exactly.
2: That was my a look at that, a, a study of the underground economy, a study of survival. And it was, they were both New York films. And I made Prince of Broadway while while I was waiting for Takeout to get a release. But what happened, and it was kind of a funny thing that happened here, I was on the festival circuit with Prince of Broadway and it was getting very well received Mm -hmm. at the same time that Takeout finally got its theatrical release. It happened at the same time, same year. So critics and some journalists thought it was a one-two punch. It was actually, they (laughs) they were actually, they were made four years apart. Or three years apart, but, but suddenly you were uh, prolific yeah, overnight. Exa- yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but I think one supported the other, and they were both actually, they were. Both nominated for the Casavettes Award for the for the Spirit, Spirit Awards. Awards awesome. The same year, wow. so they competed against one another. Wow! And which was kind of cool. That is, <laughs> I had to see that uh, we were sitting at the table at the Spirits, and the, the you know the the camera operator comes over to grab yeah, our reactions yeah. while the nominations right. were being put up on the screen. And I just all you had to do was pivot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. did you jump between tables? For I know the... <laughs> I had to lean to my left to be
2: with Shi Ching
0: for takeout, and lean to my right to be with Darren Dean on Prince of Broadway. That's great. Then comes the one that, when we were speaking earlier, you said people are now, you know, because of The Flora Project, rushing to figure out what inspired this. And a lot of people, mm. the first thing they turn to is Tangerine. Mm. But in fact, you're saying Starlet, which you released in 2012, another one that you were basically doing everything on, producing, writing, directing, editing. I was that, one of the producers. I did. One of the, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that that was, in fact, more of an influence. And this one is about... Porn actresses in San Fernando Valley. Exactly. It was, uh, I, the reason I say it is, is also
2: because of the style. The style is very, probably closer to Florida in the way that it's more controlled. There's more lockdown camera. We're using the sun a lot, you know, the sunny San Fernando Valley. And it has a very, eh. Uh, Kind of a similar look to mm-hmm. That Floridian Sun. And it's also the pacing is slower. It's not as hyperactive as Tangerine. It's it's a much slower paced film. But yes, that film, that was the first film I didn't have to pay for on uh, my <laughs> own. Uh, we actually found financiers. It was still a low, low budget. You could actually be considered micro budget because really? it was only a quarter of a million. Wow. And it was with Dree Hemingway, Mariel's daughter, yes. Ernest's yes. Great, great-granddaughter. That film, it did well at the the spirits. And it was helping me along, you know, helping me along, but it didn't, something happened. It didn't totally get me there. It wasn't like I was, I was suddenly being courted by studios or agencies. Kind of I had an agent, it but it got music box pictures, okay, which is yeah, a very, yeah. I love that label. They, yeah. they get really prestigious titles, especially foreign titles. Yeah. They did great with Ida and yes. girl with the dragon tattoo yes. series. And so it was a small release, but it was getting us out there. But for some reason or another could not, get financing on the next film which was supposed to be
0: Florida really yeah so you you guys have been thinking about Florida for that long because we're talking back in 2012 was when Starlet got released so that means that it
2: was actually 2011 I think that Chris brought us the idea
0: brought you the idea yeah now Chris has been your collaborator on the last three uh, the last three so Starlet, Tangerine, Tangerine. and now Florida Project.
2: And also, he goes way back. We went to NYU together. Okay. And he was sort of the fourth unofficial member of Greg the Bunny. This is Chris Bergach. Chris Bergach, yes.
0: Okay, so Tangerine is the the first one I'm going to ask you about that probably a lot of our listeners will have already seen, you know, a lot, not to in any way discredit these other movies, just got the best release probably. But for anyone who hasn't, Transgender prostitute in the Santa Monica and Highland part of LA looking for her cheating boyfriend pimp. Why that subject matter, of all (laughs) things, and because the thing that people might assume, it came out Mm. at a time when America was starting to wrap its head around transgender issues. I think it was right around the Caitlyn Jenner coming out. Orange is the New Black was big. Right, All the things that are sort of the pinpoint, the things that people refer to. But you were making it before any of that.
2: Right. I think – well, I think that the topic or the exploration of transgender stories had hit – just hit in the zeitgeist that year. Something about it. But we were interested in, in – at first the location of Santa Monica and Highland, which is a sort of an infamous intersection in Hollywood – on the border of West Hollywood and Hollywood. And it's only a mile from my house. So, so when from in my, one
0: line, by the way, did you move to LA? Because we oh. think of you <laughs> as this New York guy. I United. know, right? Yeah.
2: I, was New York, I was a New Yorker up to around 2010 when I did that last season of Greg the Bunny, which okay. is called Warren the Ape. And then I fell in love with LA, but being there. Yeah. And I said, I moved back to New York to write Starlet so I could get myself back to LA. <laughs> so I got, I we went out and shot Starlet in 2011 gotcha. and I've been there since. Gotcha. So I live about a mile from the intersection of Highland and Santa Monica. You know, it's, it's an intersection that people drive by. Yes. It's a major artery. And, but you know, I never understood upon moving to LA, I was actually taken aback because I thought the industry had shot that town out. I mean, you know, it's the it's where it's the the city is the industry. So you you would think that they would have covered all the topics, communities, subcultures, et cetera, et cetera. But you start to realize when you live there that actually there's a whole other city, like, you know, the, first off there's south of olympic right. that just has just never been on right. film except right. for straight out of Compton right. and then there's a, there's also you realize that the you know you do start to see who's telling stories are often telling just stories about themselves i mean mm-hmm. we we you think of uh, la stories and you think of beverly hills and venice beach and you think of the walk of fame mm-hmm. but i think that there there's still so many Communities and neighborhoods, subcultures, etc., that that are underrepresented, yeah. and and I I said I just didn't understand how this corner, which was so infamous in a way, and had obviously there were probably millions of stories to be told on this corner, how how it's never been represented in film and TV, except for Bruce LeBruce. Bruce, he actually did cover the hustler scene slightly west
0: now about right, about where I live. Did you though, aside from? passing by and Mm. living near all this, did you know anyone in the trans community? Did you have, I mean, was it more just a thing like, this is a world I don't know, so I want to know? Exactly, that's exactly it, the
2: second, the latter. And we knew that Chris and I really did not know anything about that world, and we're cisgender white guys, and we thought we are definitely going to do this the right way. Mm-hmm. We do not want to do this in a disrespectful way sure. before we write anything down. We are going to go into that world and, and do our research process. See, I, 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 I think I learned how to, to do this research process, this journalistic research process by, by Prince of Broadway. Prince of Broadway was really the way that I figured it out because Prince of Broadway, you know, was about undocumented African immigrants in the wholesale district of New York. You show up and you start asking questions and you're looked at as either police or just annoying film students that are just uh, they don't they're trying to hustle on the street. They don't have time for you. So we had to work our way in, befriend, gain trust and find that one person who was going to open their world to us and it happened to be Prince Adeu and it took us so long to find him and when we did it was it took another s- almost year to, to to understand the world and so that's exactly what happened with Tangerine we were looking for our passport into the world we happened to find Maya Taylor very early on how did that happen well, Chris and I first hit the corner of Santa Monica and Highland, just literally walking up to people, shaking hands, saying we're we're independent filmmakers and we'd like to make a film in this area and tell a story that takes place here, but we don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. So, would you like to speak with us? And and sometimes, you know, very brief conversations here and there. But we we decided it wasn't going to work there. We had to find where people were actually relaxed and socializing. And it happened to be that the LGBT center was right around the corner on McCadden, mm-hmm. about a block away and there's a courtyard there and they service youth at risk. And we, we walked over there, went into the courtyard and across the courtyard, Maya was there with some friends and I could, I just, there was something about Maya, you know, even though she was 35, 40 feet away, she was grabbing us. Her persona had, she was such a strong personality. She was commanding the conversation. She was a part of, she was laughing loud. There was something that just said, she might be the one. Let's go over. We went over, we, we, we did our spiel. We, we, (laughs) you know, the good thing is that I was on my, fifth film by that point. So I had DVDs to show because all my films, you know, did get distribution. So I was able to pull out something that looked very professional and say, here, check this out. I made a film called Starlet. I made a film called Prince of Broadway. And she was just like, yeah, I would love to keep talking with you. So
0: she had any background in acting at that point? No, no. she. Which is another theme of yours, which is like, I I think the central characters in your movies with mm the exception of Willem Dafoe now in Florida project that you pretty much gravitate towards non-actors, right?
2: Well, I don't like to call them non-actors. I like to call them first time. Yes. first Right. Because the the thing is that it hurts the, it hurts them in the eyes of the industry. If they're seen as non-professional or non-actors, right? because sometimes, you know, if you think at the industry, they're so close minded sometimes. Right. They'll say, they'll hear non professional and think unprofessional. Right. And then, like, but yeah, for the most part, first timers, I've worked with, of course, you know, James Ransone right. and and Karin Karagulian, who was a first timer when I put him in four letter words, right. but has been in all of my films. And now I consider him quite seasoned. He was Narik in yes. Florida and he was Razmik in, he was the Armenian cab driver in Tangerine. So now, the
0: reason though for that the openness to working with people who haven't done this before yeah. is, does that trace back to your interest in neorealism or what, what is that about?
2: There is, there is that. I also love to see fresh faces on the screen. I know that I'm, you know, I love Spike Lee, as I said earlier, mm-hmm. and what's wonderful about his films is that he, he will always introduce, fresh faces yeah. and they become stars. Mm-hmm. I mean, look what he did with Sam Jackson, mm-hmm. Halle Berry, yeah. etc. So I love that. I love when it's mixed. I, I, I can't, sometimes I look at films, especially now, and I understand, you know, there is a reason to do it because for box office purposes, but when you see a poster and it's just, Five A-listers in a row. You're just like, well, well you know, <laughs> there's nothing new here. Right. There's nothing exciting. So I love discovering people. Right. But of course, you know, it, it, you have to take your time with that. Yeah. You It takes time to find these people. So anyway, Maya, she showed a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and was like, I want to introduce you to somebody who I actually she thought, I want to introduce you to my one friend who actually did take drama class Mm -hmm. in high school and she's wonderful and she's the actress. And she introduced me to Kiki. Yes, Now it just happened to be that they both are wonderful actresses and very skilled, graded improv, et cetera, et cetera. But the two of them, when I saw the two of them together, that first time that they got together at the, I believe it was like, Jack in the box mm-hmm. that we were doing all of our, we were sitting down at a fast food restaurant and indie, doing a real rec- indie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the two of them had such a wonderful dynamic and just the way that they would set up one another's jokes and deliver punchlines. It was just like this perfect pair, this dynamic duo. And I thought, what we don't have to look any further. We yeah. have the two leads. We just have to figure out a plot. So we just interviewed the hell out of them looking for anything that we could start down the road with on an A plot here. We knew we wanted this thing to have, we were going for slightly more like accessibility to the mainstream. So we wanted something that had a three act structure and character arcs and a real drive forward, Mm -hmm. right? We knew it was gonna take place in one day because of our budget. We didn't wanna have different wardrobe changes. We wanted continuity to be easy. Mm -hmm. So we knew it was gonna be one day, but we were just looking for something. And a few weeks later, Kiki mentioned that this is something that not the way it went down in any way, but she came and she said to us that she suspected her boyfriend of cheating with a cisgender woman. And, She's been outspoken about this yes, in the media. Yes, so that's why I feel yes, comfortable about yes. talking about it. But it ended up not being true. But we were talking about what would a character who found out about this and she's a firecracker, what, how would this go down? Right. And then it was just about us fleshing it out in the way that we felt would be the most realistic. Like, where would she go to find this woman? Where would What would happen, right. et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually Chris and I were able to get a beat sheet out It was very important always, by the way, for Chris and I to give the girls approval and and also just get them to sign off on everything. So when it was legit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And just also because we're from outside of that world and I wanted that representation to be accurate and respectful. So they they read it and. Then we move forward with from a treatment to a scriptment, and when we shot the film, it was actually still in the scriptment form. Mm-hmm. It was about seventy pages, okay. with some you know paragraphs just saying this will be an area which we'll we'll figure out on yeah, set, or yeah. this will be let's keep this loose and and figure this out in the moment.
0: Well, the the you know the two big talking points as people you know the, the the way it always works i guess with as people learn about films there's a couple of things they one or two points that initially piqued their interest and in this case it was a movie that was about trans subject matter which was now again what what was on a lot of people's minds but also yes. it was a movie that was famously shot on iPhone yeah. 5s and i wonder you know when and why you first sort of said I want to make my next movie on mm. iPhones and how those around you, was everybody as immediately mm. on, you know, immediately on board about that or just how did that come together? Cause now it mm. sounds brilliant. You made it cool to do that. Other people I think are, you know, emulating you, but at the time it must've sounded a little crazy.
2: Yes. But it, it came from a place, a very organic place. It came from basically us having, This scriptment and looking at it, saying, "There's no way we'll pull this off on this budget." We were given a very Mark and Jay Duplass, who who produced and financed the film, along with Through Films. Mm -hmm. They it was a very solid number that we just we knew we could not go over. Mm -hmm. It was micro budget. Yeah. So we said where are we going to start cutting costs? And the first place that we looked at was the camera department because of the fact that the 5S was a major jump up in technology. The HD video actually looked great. There were tools at the time of an app called Filmic Pro, which made it easy. We could shoot at 24 frames a second. Because this is a common
0: misconception. People think you could just, everybody thinks they could just walk outside with their iPhone and do this. You guys figured out, and, and there were, I guess, partners that worked on some of these apps to, to develop with you things that you well, needed? Well, no, no. Well, the apps were already out there, but
2: we, of course, we, we worked with them to make sure we were using the most up-to-date software yes. and everything like that. But then there happened to be and it was just through a lot of exploration and mm-hmm. tests. And I spent a lot of time on Vimeo looking at like a iPhone test. There was actually a page on Vimeo that was dedicated to iPhone, short films, wow. et cetera. And I was really, I was like, this is really, what's wrong with yeah. this? <laughs> I mean, there's, it looks great. Right. I, there's not. Do you light things the same way with an,
0: when you're shooting with an iPhone?
2: It depends. Yeah. It depends. I mean, it is like shooting digital where you get a lot with very little light. Right. So you can use a lot of practicals. But, you know, Radium Chung, who shot the film, he comes from a gaffing background. So he knows his lighting mm-hmm. and he made things pretty. Yeah. You know, by just with using very little sometimes bounce boards, sometimes reflectors, sometimes the practical enhancing practical yeah. light. So there is, he's quite skilled and there is, it wasn't just us turning on the camera. Plus, there was a, There happened to be, and this is what I think really sold me. Um, There was an anamorphic adapter being created by a, a, that was created by a company called Moondog Labs. They were in their prototype stage. It happened to be a Kickstarter campaign I found. And I said, if you give us your prototypes, we'd love to shoot our film on this. And I dropped the Duplass name that (laughs) helped, but they sent us their prototypes. This was, this allowed us to shoot in true scope. So I said, if we can make an iPhone movie, but it's in true anamorphic scope, mm-hmm. this'll, and it gives us all those characteristics of scope. You know, the, the light flares that are, takes the light and spreads it across the frame. You have the bokeh. So it actually looks really wonderful. Yeah, no, um, totally. And then, so we did, we did some, we did some tests. We, Technicolor was nice enough about allowing us to, to go over there and project it on their big screen. And we said, this holds up. Yeah. Oh Yes, of course it has a different look. There's there's a lack of any depth of field because, ne- you know, ne- you, everything's in focus. Right, right. But it doesn't matter because let's show LA for what it is. Let's keep it wide. And it gives you a sense that you're really with the girls and walking down the boulevard. Yeah. And so I thought we were going to be one of 10 films at Sundance that year. I really did. I mean, we shot on the yeah. iPhone. I thought... Why not? It's so easy. Right. We're going to be one of 10 films. And we're basically the only yeah. film at Sundance. And because of that, I think we got a, a lot of attention. We didn't want it to be a, a, a stunt. We no, definitely no. didn't want it to but be it a stunt, also has but it a became one. A
0: classical reason, though, also for you, right? When you're working with people who haven't mm-hmm. yet acted, maybe it's less intimidating to to act for an iPhone as opposed to a massive setup. Yes, that's exactly
2: it. I mean, it re- the intimidation factor is removed immediately. I think this is a subconscious thing as well. We we realized that working just walking up to people, walking up to Maya and Kiki's friends on the streets and saying, "Let's act right now," would be so much easier with a phone than a real anything mm. that looked like a camera. Yeah. Even a DSLR camera would 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 intimidate people, but the fact that everybody owns a smartphone right. and everyone always is doing selfies right, of each right, other, right. there was none of that. And actually, if you you saw us from across the street shooting. We had like, what, five people, a crew of five people. So the only giveaway that we were actually professional was usually the boom pole. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. interesting. I mean, we were tiny. And 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 people think we had a pimped out iPhone. We really <laughs> just had a tiny little adapter that fit over the lens. Plus, sometimes I used a smoothie, which is like a handheld stabilizing thing. Wow. So it was tiny.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. And so when the movie came out, very well received by the critical community, people that love art house movies, all of these kinds Mm. of things. I know it was maybe a little frustrating that the Academy did not get as on board as the Spirit Awards and some Mm. of these guys, even though there was a a campaign. Mm. So I I guess I want to just ask you what you make of the overall response to that movie and how it then impacted life afterwards. I think you heard from Apple and things like that.
2: Oh, well, Apple has been, you know, very supportive. I just got invited to their Apple event, which was very interesting. <laughs> got to sit there with JJ Abrams That's and Zach great. Snyder and Deborah Snyder. It was really cool. <laughs> and I always get the most updated phone. Yes. But yeah, it's it's been uh the response. Well, overall, you know, critically it was very well received. I think but more importantly, I think for me, just the public response has been was wonderful because of the fact that it actually did feel like it made an impact. I had to this day, you know, I have people contacting me on Facebook and Twitter saying, you know, I never thought I would identify with two trans sex workers on the corner of Santa Monica and Highland. I live in Kansas, but but I love them so much. And I feel like they're my sisters, you know, so, so it really, I think, hopefully, you know, opened people's minds about, you know, judging other people Mm -hmm. and not, not judging other people, empathy for people who are, who have. You know, or if you think about you know trans women of color who 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 live in poverty, they are the most marginalized people in the world. So it's just the way that the public responded, and the way that there was real love and people thinking about the real Alexandras yeah. and Cindys out there. I think it really opened a lot of eyes and changed a lot of ways people think.
0: Absolutely. Now on a on a personal level, how quickly did the success of Tangerine? Enable you to now get to work on this movie that you've been thinking about even before it, Florida Project. It was a direct result.
2: Yeah, it was almost immediate, which was great. There were a few financiers who who stepped up, but there was one in particular, June Pictures, and they just said, "You get final cut, and <laughs> you can do whatever you want, and we'll give you." A, you know, it wasn't wasn't all of a sudden I was a, wasn't working in the millions, and right, millions right, of dollars, right. but it, it was definitely we. I finally broke a million. Yeah, with, you know, I mean, all of my films up to this point. Yeah. If you added up all the budgets of the first five films, it's still under a million dollars. Amazing. Yeah, and oh suddenly God. I was
0: able to work with a couple million, okay. which is really nice. And, and we should but, just say that in between, yeah. you did a, a another iPhone related project that was interesting. Just an eleven minute short called Snowbird that was commissioned by a fashion label and yes, Kenzo, Kenzo, and and well received. And it was my first time I was able to work with Alexis
2: Sabé, another wonderful director of photography who, who then worked with me
0: on, on Florida. Gotcha. Well, let's just for the record establish. So you, this was again, co-written Florida project with Chris Bergosh, right? Yes, yes. Where did the idea even come from for this?
2: Well, first off, his mother had just relocated to Florida in the Kissimmee Orlando area in around 2011. And he was also, he knows everything Disney. I mean, he <laughs> is really on top of his right. Disney news. And I think that, he found some news articles just by accident. Maybe his mother presented them to him. And plus he was down there and, and seeing Route one ninety two and it wasn't the Route one ninety two he had remembered growing up and visiting those parks. Yeah. He it changed a lot. It was it was very affected by the recession of oh eight. Mm-hmm. So he was calling me and sending me photos saying, you know, There's something going on down here. You might be interested in this. There are families with children who are living in budget motels, living there. Mm -hmm. You know, not just just staying. Yeah, Yeah, this is this is something which, you know, you have people who are they can't find permanent housing. They are stuck in this situation, paying just as much as we do Mm -hmm. for 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 their not I can't call it rent because it's not rent, but their you know, their time there thousand dollars a month, but they are stuck in this situation because they are Paycheck to paycheck, if that, struggling week to week, night to night sometimes. So I thought, "Ooh, this is very interesting. I started reading more about it. And I had always, I don't know if you know this, but I had always, I've always been influenced and inspired by the Little Rascals. Like my entire career. Really? It's had a very big impact on me.
0: Since you were a kid, you were into it?
2: Yeah, because they would, in the New York area, they would, the a local new york television after school 4 p.m 3 30 p.m they would show two or three little rascal right. shorts and i just loved the <laughs> hell out of them i thought they were actually to take to this day yeah. i think they were very far ahead of their time yeah. with uh, you know the 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 level of, of of comedy and the sophistication of their comedy wonderful directors and of course how roach who yeah. produced the yeah. series I, I still look at them, and I mean, I'm ve- I really respect it and of course there's Spanky McFarlane who is the number one for me and so anyway but, but the reason I bring it up is because if you think about what the Little Rascals are they're these comic shorts set against the Great Depression most of the kids were living in poverty but it wasn't really focused on what it was their comical adventures it was their humor and heart etc and what made kids kids universally yeah. so this was my opportunity I think when I heard this about this topic and the fact that this area had been affected by our last you know, recession, I thought this could be a way of making a present day Little Rascals. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, we, that's how it came about.
0: Well, I want to ask uh, just to confirm a couple of sort of origin stories of terms and things here. Yes. The Florida Project, the yeah. title, yes. refers to what?
2: It refers to what... I guess the Disney Corporation or Disney himself was referring, how he referred to that area of land when they were purchasing it back in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. I guess when they wanted to keep it sort of on the down low, hush, hush. They didn't (laughs) want other people to be competing with the the purchasing of land down there. So they just called it the Florida Project. And that was where they were going to eventually put Disney World.
0: Now, the motel that your film is set in Mm -hmm. is the Magic Castle. Right. Is that actually a place? Oh, yeah. Magic
2: Castle Inn and Suites. You can look them up on Yelp. (laughs) A lot of these budget motels and also just small businesses along Route 192 were targeted to the same tourists at the same tourists who were frequenting the parks. So basically, they had to have the same themes and the same looks as the parks. And they were candy-coated and sort of had a a, a childlike feel to them. And this one really is one of the... The most iconic in that area, and it was called the Magic Castle. It was purple colored and yeah. looked like a castle. And so, from the very beginning, when we started down this road and we started doing our trips there,
0: we said, "How can this not be Mooney's residence?" Right. Yeah. Now, Mooney, you bring up this is the pro- the main protagonist, and I've got to ask you: the Magic Kingdom is obviously Mickey and Minnie's domain. Mm. The Magic mm-hmm. Castle is. Are we? Do we end up with a character called Mooney because this is sort of a. a Play on Mickey and Minnie. She's her oh. play. It's her
2: her terrain here. No, I don't think so. I think Mooney came from. To tell you the truth, I don't. I think one of the early scripts had her going on one of the moon rides at the end. It was always about talking about the stars. It's a very astrological sure. sort of thing. And then the mother's name is Haley. Haley's comet. Right, right. So there was just plays on that. I yeah.
0: No, I, that's that's yeah, very yeah. interesting about the Haley. I didn't even think about Haley's and Mooney. But speaking of those characters and and these others, can you just share? briefly, how we wound up with, mm. a, first of all, Willem Dafoe, right. uh, who obviously has been doing this forever, mm. but then also a number of people who are much less experienced in this, but are just all, it's like the most perfectly cast thing. So how did we end up with these guys? Chris and I were
2: doing our research. We were actually, we were taking trips there and we thought at first this was just going to be a mother-daughter story mm-hmm. using the tropes of Disney films, you know, the mother always in pro- in trouble or or dead, but we came across this one budget motel in which we found this manager there who really opened his world to us and really was believed in the project and wanted the story to be told. And I saw, I think in many ways he inspired Bobby. I saw this struggle that he was dealing with inside he did not sign up for this he was just basically a manager handyman and suddenly he was put in the position of probably having to evict some of these families if they couldn't come up with their nightly mm-hmm. rate and put them on the streets mm-hmm. and it was like he was torn mm-hmm. and he was had a compassion for the, the families and a love for these children but had to keep a distance because he might be hurt along the way mm-hmm. and it was a reluctant parental mm-hmm. figure and i thought this is we need to add this mm-hmm. we need to add this character and he became bobby, bobby. and regarding casting on this, we, I like to mix it up, as you know, Mm -hmm. I like to have, you know, mixed professionals with non-professionals. And, you know, of course we went out to the agencies and our casting director, Carmen Cuba, who was looking for our Bobby. And when Willem's name came across the table, I just, how could I say no? I mean, I've been a fan. I remember seeing him. I think my first exposure to him was to live and die in LA. Okay. And then of course seeing Platoon. Platoon, And so, you know, he's always been in my life and I've, I consider him one of our greats. So the fact that he was even considering this and liked the movie Tangerine, I got on a plane, red eyed it to New York because it was a small (laughs) window to see him. And we sat down, had coffee and we were on the same page
0: Immediately. And he was cool with the idea that he's going to be surrounded by people yes. who have not done this. Yes.
2: Well, he's such a, you know, he's an artist. He's a guy who wants to experiment. He's a guy who, who likes a challenge. And is also kind and patient. Yeah. I mean, I surrounded him with six-year-olds and some a lot of first-timers. Right. And yet he wanted to blend in. So he was
0: never, he was great about making it work. And And, and yeah. those six-year-olds and your Haley right, and yeah. other, I mean the th- stories that I've read about how you found them are just incredible. Well, the
2: kids are all locally cast and I wanted that to be. I didn't want to fly in Hollywood right. kids. So, the kids were all done from either casting calls or street casting. You know, Brooklyn came in along with Christopher Rivera from our casting call in Orlando and Brooklyn had already had experience. She was in some commercials and her mother is actually a coach and she had been in one indie. So, she came with a level of experience that was nice because i didn't have to you know work as hard with her she's already she's incredible mm. i i honestly put her in the same category as like a mickey rooney no, or it's
0: unbelievable a absolutely jodie foster yeah.
2: She's a born thespian. She's like, <laughs> she's she understands method and she understands character. And it's really, truly, it's incredible to it see is. her work. I, I mean- She's as good as anybody this, this year in any movie. It's, it's awesome. I, I agree with you. And I was so honored to have worked with her because she was just impressing me every minute of the day. And she would always, you know, there's a limited number of hours you can work with children. Right. And so at the end of, they can be on set for, I think, 10 hours, but the camera can only be rolling- like 8 maybe yeah and so at the end of the eight hours we would say time to go home brooklyn and she'd be like no i don't want to go home she loved it because this was her summer you did this over the summer yes. about a year ago yes this was last summer we we knew we were stealing these kids summer yeah i remember how precious summer summers were sure. when i was growing up and we wanted to turn this summer into a summer camp for the sure. kids and samantha kwan who was our acting coach on the film worked really hard with always making sure that the kids were engaged and, and having fun right. yet at the same time they was they were working For they were sure. learning their lines they were they were understanding blocking getting to understand blocking and little those three plus Aiden uh, who plays Dickie in the film they're they're just like wonderful these four kids are just wonderful to work with seems like Bria was Instagram
0: I know that's kind of now the buzz thing if any no, she's our amazing. iPhone story so I like, guess. so I mean I go on Instagram but I'm not making great discoveries how did you even come upon her
2: well, I think I you know, I wish I knew. That's the thing. <laughs> I wish I knew. I think it was one of those, you know, when you're in on social media yeah. and you're in a black hole sitting yeah. in bed and you're just like, you know, swipe, Yes, swipe, yes, swipe, yes. Oh, I just, know what you are Yeah, doing. And, and I think somebody had reposted one of her posts and she just made me laugh she made me, she wasn't just your normal Instagram girl that puckers and does a selfie. Right. She had stuff to say, you know, cause there's video right, on right. Instagram. So I was w- hearing her talk and she, she, she had the physicality. She was already putting herself out there. So I knew she was an extrovert yeah. and, and that's what you need with first time. Yes. You need extroverts. So I, DM'd her she thought I was a stalker uh, I said please Google me right she did she was still I mean still I was asking her to fly to Orlando right. <laughs> and audition which is not you don't yeah. think Hollywood uh, that's right. a different Hollywood in Florida yes. yeah yeah. So, yeah exactly so she comes down there we had already cast Brooklyn and Valeria Valeria came from Target by the way I, I her heard that so that yeah. I
0: can, you can see how it you could be it misconstrued up. that yes. you're, you're walking through Target and oh that's a good
3: six year old exactly
2: exactly so i see that's again why I'm glad I have six films under my right. belt now because it makes it so much easier. <laughs> right. But anyway, so she comes to Orlando immediately. I saw they it's working. The bon- the the connection is there. I believe them as mother and daughter. I didn't even actually ask them to. I said, I know you've read the script, but I don't want you to go into this as a mom and daughter relationship. I want you to think sibling. I want you think sisters. Haley is a young mom. She probably had Mooney at 15. Mm -hmm. She never had the chance to grow up. She was a kid having a kid. I want you to be that way with her. And they were just like, yeah, they were just two sisters, two buds. They were singing their top 40 songs. (laughs) It worked. And then I was just like, my financiers were really nice about allowing this to happen because you know, it's a big risk. It's a big gamble. You never know. And, but she came down a month early. We, we had a crash course in acting. She got to the place where she needed to get to and holding her own with Willem within two weeks.
0: Is there a secret though with, with child actors? Because I've, interviewed a number of filmmakers who've worked with them. And mm. what I've heard from some is that what you have to do is do a ton of takes and then hope it comes together in the editing room. In this mm. case, you sound like you had some wonderful natural or, or mm. young talents, mm. but but how much of that is true that the well, editing room is essential with this stuff?
2: That's what I had heard. Yeah. See, I'd never worked with kids of this age before. Right. So my fallback was my edit. Right. I, was, I thought, oh, the whole, I must manipulate performance in the editing room. Nobody will know. As long as I get enough <laughs> coverage, sometimes I'll just shoot them not even in character. But that's what I thought. Right. But Samantha kept telling me it's not going to work. I've no kids. I've coached kids. They have to learn their lines. They have to understand their characters. And you have to, blocking is very different too. You literally have to walk them through. Like handhold them and walk them. You take one, two, three steps, turn to the right. It's not just like saying enter the room and turn to the right you know it's yeah it's, you really have yeah. to physically get them but the problem the thing is is that i started to see this when we were doing our rehearsals i was like you're right samantha we really did we do need to have these kids at a place we don't have time right we really we don't have time we're limited hours we're shooting 35 millimeter in the middle of the summer we're dealing with you know seasoned actors here we can't be wasting mm-hmm. time on set so to tell you the truth yeah that's the amazing part I didn't have to manipulate in, in 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 post-production. They were delivering such wonderful performances that I could hold on them. And that was the goal from the very beginning. I wanted this to be a slower film. Right. I didn't want to have to cut, 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 cut. I wanted long takes on kids to show these are real performances. And, and so it's really about casting. If you're yeah. asking the secret, it's about taking the time to cast the right kids and then it's about time to... Extroverts, as I said earlier, people, kids who don't get embarrassed, kids who don't get upset, just allowing them to be themselves in many ways, just just saying, it's okay, let's try it again. Put right. it into your words.
0: Let's do that. And then, and just laughing and having a very family community. The assumption would be you're coming off your most successful in by a lot of measures film that you'd done with Tangerine. A part of that was that you'd done this with iPhones. Yeah. So now for your next one, you, you, Say I'm actually not going to do that again. In fact, right. I'm not even going to do digital. Yeah. I'm going to go to 35 millimeter. Right? Why? Yes,
2: that's a big subject and probably a whole other podcast. Right. But I was number one. I didn't. I was. I was fearful of becoming the iPhone guy. Mm-hmm. That was one thing. So I wanted to go 180 degrees the other direction. But secondly, you know, I do love film. I love celluloid. It's what created our industry, our art. You know, that was the medium that created cinema. We're in a place right now where there is a real threat of it dying. And I just don't think that's right. I think that I'm, you know, lucky enough to be in this position where I had the money to shoot it on film. And you know what? I'm going to be a filmmaker who helps you know keep this right. medium alive and and then that's so that's the second reason the third reason is that there is an organic quality you can find beauty in digital you can find beauty in celluloid i'm not arguing that what i am saying though is that there is an organic quality of celluloid that no matter what filters you want to throw on your digital no matter what <laughs> much you want to say you'll never achieve that organic quality and it's hard It's really hard to articulate exactly what it is, but it's there. You can tell when something's shot on film. And I always say this, when was the last time you saw a film shot on film and say, I wish that was shot digitally.
0: Right, right, right. But you always go into a digital film saying, I wish that was shot on film. For sure. You know, so This film was so well-received at Cannes. I think there was the 10 Minutes in Ovation, then Toronto, now New York. What have you made of the way people have responded to it? Just did you, in your sort of greatest hopes imagine that it would go over as well as it has no no i i've been how warmly it's been received has been
2: incredible i thought it was going to be more divisive like i did with tangerine I'm why just, would it be divisive well you know you know because we are approaching this serious subject matter in in a way that you know comedy is is upfront. it's 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 overtly a comedy yet we're dealing with very serious subject matter so our stylistic approach to this could I thought might turn some people off, even though I believe that it is the way to get that message out to a greater audience mm-hmm. and reach more people. And that's the goal with mm-hmm. this style. Yeah. So who knows? Who knows? I mean, I, I, I don't know how the public will react. It opens up in a week, October 6th here in New York and LA, and we'll see. But if it's any way, the same way that, you know, festival goers have been accepting it and critics and journalists, then, then, hey, that's wonderful. I'm just, you know, I'm just really happy for my actors, I really am happy for the, the attention they're getting. They deserve it. This cast is amazing. I'm, I always say I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself and I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I had one weak link in this no. cast. And I, I don't, no. they're all just absolutely solid. My, my cinematographer yeah. is solid. Yeah. So it's just been a nice wild ride and we'll see what happens.
0: And lastly, what you? what's next for you? You've said, there was a funny quote I came across. You said, everyone's asking if I've been offered a superhero movie. And no, I definitely have not, <laughs> close quote. So, I mean, would you even want one if you were offered? Or, or do you are you gonna continue to kind of tell these stories that other people are not even sort of paying attention to? It really it really depends.
2: I'm looking to be obviously inspired. I don't have anything right now that, I, I mean, I do. I do have a few scripts that we're, we're thinking about. But it's, it's really about just, taking it one step at a time. I'm not, I don't want to be pressured by producers and agents to get something together right away. You know, seeing how the public reacts to this film will probably dictate where it goes next. And yeah, to answer your question regarding, you know, franchise and stuff. No, you know what? I've, 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 I've battled through this industry for 25 years. I probably would have said yes, 10 years ago, but right now I'm in a place where like, you know, I, I feel like I'm, making these films that have a signature. I like writing my own films. And so, no, I'll
0: probably stick with this. Please, it's great. Keep, <laughs> keep going. Yeah, you know, if it ain't broken. But right. thank you so much for doing this. Oh, really thank you. It. Thank yeah. you, sir. Brooklyn, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. So I want to begin by asking you a very tough question. How did you get such a beautiful name? It sounds like the place, but it's got two ends.
3: Yes, it does. Well, my mom just really thought it up and i think that she's always wanted to name her kid brooklyn and i also have another baby brother oh yeah so i don't know where i just got the name because my mom wanted to name me that that's
0: cool i don't know anybody else that's that's got it like that so where are you from
3: i'm from florida
0: near orlando near where the all this movie Uh, takes place
3: i'm like winter springs like kind of Yeah, it's a suburb.
0: Sure. Well, we are joined in this room by your dad, and I know your mom is also a big supporter of all the stuff that you're Mm -hmm. doing. Can you tell us a little bit about them? What do they do?
3: My dad is an environmental scientist. Cool. He, like, with grease traps and all grease, but um, he makes it stop. And my mom's an acting coach, and they've just been really, really supportive, and they've been sacrificing a lot for me, and I'm very, very thankful that they're sacrificing all this because they've took a lot of a lot of time away from my brother, and that really means a lot to me. And I and I hope today I just make them really, really proud.
0: Well, I'm sure you are because you're you're doing a great job. But I oh, thank you. Want to ask you? So you're you're now seven.
3: Yes, I made this seven. movie
0: when you were six. Yes. You already had made, I think, one other movie? Two. Two other movies before this. When did you first think you were going to try acting?
3: I was a baby. I did not know about acting because my mom, she was an agent before she was an acting Mm -hmm. coach. And my meme always said, why don't you get her into acting? And my mom's like, No. No way. But then one day, I got a call from Katie, my mom's friend, mm-hmm. who was an agent, and she's like, "Hey, do you want Brooklyn to audition?" And she's like, "Okay." And she talked to me about it, and I was like, "Okay." And I I fell in love with it that audition, and I was. And then I've always been in acting since I was two. So,
0: what do you think you like then, and what do you like now about it? Is it just getting to pretend to be somebody else?
3: It's just being that you can make a whole other family, and that you can meet your best friends, and you can, and even I got to meet Bria and mm-hmm. all of those wonderful kids. And sometimes it tells a really big story, and you can get, and you can really get a better chance to see celebrities. Mm-hmm. And you're very, very lucky if you're in acting.
0: Sure. So, what were the two projects before the Florida project?
3: So the first one I did was. Robodog. And then actually the producer of that movie was making his own movie. And I was very, very lucky because the little role was supposed to be played by a boy, but he switched it to a girl and it's, and I got to be in it. So I'm very, very lucky for that. And I'm very, very lucky for Robodog.
0: Now, were those parts that you played in those other movies, were they, did you have as much Responsibility as you had with
3: Florida Project? No. In RoboDog, I had some responsibilities, mm-hmm. but I was only four or five, mm-hmm. and I didn't really know how to act or how to dress up, <laughs> but, and I didn't know how to be mature, and I was just all over the place.
0: So did you learn a lot making those that those movies that you were able to use when you made yes. the Florida Project?
3: I, I took all of that information, and I just made it into Mooney.
0: Yeah. So what other than acting are your interests in life? What do you like to do?
3: I'm into dancing too. I just dance all over the house when I'm done with dance class and the movie Leap with Elle Fanning. It just really inspired me to do more dancing and just really put my mind to it. So, that's the two things that I'm really putting my mind to and I break a sweat when I'm training, so.
0: Do you uh, love dancing as much as acting and all this? I,
3: stuff? yeah, I really put my and I really love my dance teachers because they mean a lot to me and they really push me to get to the the perfect split or the perfect leap and it's really really and it's really, really good to dance, and it gets me exercise yeah. because I, like, don't exercise a lot, but not in a bad way.
0: No, I think, mm-hmm. well, you look like you're in good shape, I think. So, oh, uh, <laughs> thank
3: you. I try to be in good
0: <laughs> so shape. So let me ask you this. I was going to ask you about your your role models and your heroes and the stuff um, that you do, yeah. and now I see your shirt, so I want to ask you, tell people what's on your shirt. So
3: L, Dakota, Emma, and Daisy are the people I really, and um, Gal Gadot was supposed to, I we'll
0: have an edit. Yeah. She'll be added on.
3: Yeah, she'll be added on someday.
0: So L is, tell us the last names of these people for those Elle of us who aren't as cool as.
3: L Fanning. Yeah. Dakota Fanning. Yes. Emma Watson and Daisy Ridley and Gal Gadot.
0: What do you like about they,
3: them? Sometimes they say Gal Gadot or Gal right. Gadot.
0: Exactly. exactly. Because, Most people don't know that.
3: Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> what do um, you like about them? What's cool about them?
3: The Fanning sisters. I'll start with the Fanning sisters, then Emma and Daisy sure. and Gal. The Fanning sisters, they're just a great role model to me because I watched the movie We Bought a Zoo probably when I was six, and I just really, really wanted to know who that girl was. And so my mo- I asked my mom, and she's like, that's Elle Fanning, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. The Fanning sisters are just uh, seriously a great role model, and they just... They just show the bond of what a family should like what sisters should be. And they also and, started
0: really young too.
3: Yeah, and I mean it's they are just the sweetest people you can ever meet. And Elle Fanning, when I met her, I have met her myself. At Toronto, not, right? Toronto yes, um, But not her sister. I'm dying to meet your sister. I've been looking up to her since I saw the cat in the hat. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that girl's super pretty. And also, <laughs> Elle is just adorable. And, I mean, I when I met her, my life just lit up. And, I mean, I, I can't wait. I want to do the same thing cuz she she was there for the film festival but she came all the way to the Hollywood Reporter to meet me. That's cool. And I and I want to do that someday for someone who really really wants to meet me and I just wanna even if I have to fly out not even for a film festival to go there.
0: That's really nice. Well, I know you've got you got a lot a growing number of people who are big fans of yours and that's going to get even bigger after Friday, but let's we'll come to that. <laughs> What was going on when you, how did you first hear about the Florida Project? What was the first time? Well,
3: my mom got a call for me to audition, and she just talked to me about this audition that I was going to do, and I was like, okay, and I went, and I met Christopher and Valeria out there.
0: These are the other young kids in the
3: movie. And Aiden,
0: Yes,
3: and we just hanged out, and we got brought in, and I started doing squats and first started doing push-ups, and Sean leaned over the table, and he was like, okay, okay. okay.
0: <laughs> that he knew you guys were, were yeah. funny characters yeah. mm-hmm. and were getting along. Yeah. How did you find out that you got in the part? Did you know which part you were auditioning I for? I knew
3: I was going to play Mooney. Well, I wasn't going to play Mooney, but I was going to audition for mm-hmm. Mooney, and I had a really— and I was—I'm very, very blessed to have Sean Baker, who let me in in this movie.
0: Well, when you went into audition to yeah. to play Mooney, what did you know about Mooney at that point? How did you go about the audition?
3: I knew that Mooney. I didn't really know a lot. I just knew that she was a kid and that she had a lot of friends and that she was living in a motel. And that's what I knew. And that's about all I knew. Sure. And then when I got to play Mooney, I knew more about her. Yeah. And I got to hang out with some of the motel kids in other motels and some at the Magic Castle.
0: Are any kids who live in motels in that area actually in the movie with you?
3: Rebecca, she lives in a motel, not in the Magic Castle, but mm-hmm. another motel. Christopher, he was in one of the motels.
0: But were those guys able to tell you anything that was helpful no. about what it was like there? No.
3: No. Because those kids just really I think I enjoyed hanging around them cuz sometimes they I would ask them like can you give me some tips how to act like Mooney and they would give me tips like maybe you should be a little bit more trouble. <laughs> maybe you should Eat less ice cream. <laughs>
0: uh, so they, they, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Had you ever heard of Willem Dafoe before you were in a movie with him?
3: No. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, he doesn't make when, a lot of kids' movies, I, I guess. When
3: I heard about him, I'm like, who's Willem Dafoe?
0: <laughs> but that might have been good because then it wasn't like you were intimidated to Work with this guy. He was just a nice guy that you were working with.
3: Yeah, and we—I really didn't like hang around him and be like, "I, I want your autograph." Like, yeah. give me a hug or be like right. really, really <laughs> crazy every day. But what I really liked—it made Christopher's day every day to see Rillam on the set, and it just—he's re- a fan. Yes, because he's a fan, and sometimes that would make like a rainbow, like in my heart, because. Someone gets to meet their hero. Their hero. That's like, when and, like one, one day when <laughs>
0: you're going to make a movie with L.
3: Ah, yeah. Okay,
0: so what, now so. Sean is an interesting guy because a lot of directors like to work with, with uh, the movie where the whole cast is like Willem, where they're all famous mm-hmm, actors. Yeah. Sean seems like he's willing to take a chance on people. And so how did he direct you guys?
3: They did, and we did improv a lot. So um, he would be like, "Okay, kids, you have to say this and this and this, and then you can improv."
0: So just take it, interpret mm-hmm. it. Yeah. The like, you're gonna. We have to make this point, <laughs> yes. and you guys do it however you need to do it. Mm-hmm. He told me that when you were first going out for the part. I guess he had you and Bria who plays Haley your mother you guys hung out and you guys got along right away
3: yeah my mom while I was driving she showed me a picture of Bria and I was like ooh she's really really pretty and then I was like what's her name again and she's like Bria and I'm like Okay. And then when I got to the room, I just saw her and I, and we like, we started playing with Barbies that minute. And then we played with Play Doh and then we read books together and we would just do Snapchats together. (laughs) And it was just really, really fun. You
0: got along really well right
3: away. It got, that's the whole point. (laughs)
0: Of course. Of course. So when the movie, the movie was made last summer. Or summer of 2016, 35 days. What were the most fun and the hardest part of those 35 days?
3: The most hard was probably the last scene, and the most fun was probably the ice cream scene.
0: (laughs) Now, with the ice cream scene, which is in the trailer... Yep. This is an example of you being a very funny improviser, right? (laughs) What what happened with that one?
3: Well, um, Sean's like, knock yourself out. And like... (laughs) after the, each scene that we ate the ice cream cone we would just like shove it in our mouth so we could finish the whole ice cream yeah. cone and Sean's like you need to put the camera on right now
0: right and then when when Willem yells at you guys thank you very much and when you're leaving the
3: you're not welcome <laughs>
0: but that was an example yes. of you improvising yes. right
3: I see a lot of people doing that in movies and I was like, I'm going to do this. Yeah, know. welcome. <laughs> and and then Christopher looks, like, after we left, Christopher looks back at me, and he looks back, and I'm like.
0: <laughs> a little smirk. Yeah, yeah. Y- you knew it was good. Okay, yeah. so you mentioned the last scene being the hardest, right? Yes. That's a very emotional scene when things <laughs> yes. are kind of all going crazy around Mooney. And you ha- you have to be very upset and cry and all kinds of things in this scene. How do you get yourself to the point as an actress where you can do that so convincingly?
3: I just thought about that situation and how I I can react to that. And I mean, it just really touched my heart and I just really want to show Mooney's story. So I really got tears in my eyes.
0: That's great. Just a few more. When did you see the film for the first time?
3: Film festival.
0: Yeah. And so, how about just to get to go there? This is the biggest film festival in the world. It's very cool and glamorous and all of this stuff. And your movie, this little movie that you made in Orlando, in and around Orlando, gets in there. You go there. What was that whole thing like? Just going there and then seeing yourself on a massive it, screen?
3: I've also seen myself in RoboDog on right. like, my, my TV screens, like, probably. The same because that. like
0: one. a fifty inch or something. Yeah, yeah, but so, but help. There's a big difference between seeing yourself on a TV screen and seeing yourself at the Cannes Film Festival.
3: Yeah, it was awesome. I mean,
0: were you were you surprised that at I how was it turned very
3: out? very surprised of like how the movie came out.
0: And how about how and people reacted? I think yeah. you guys got ten minutes of applause. That doesn't happen with every movie.
3: No, it doesn't. And, I mean, I, I'm still thankful that Sean is my director.
0: Yeah. Was that a little? I saw, I know people, it was emotional, right? To see people love yeah. it that much.
3: Mm-hmm. I was just very, very happy. Yeah. Happy that we have gone that far. Sure. And it was like, I took the right path onto the yellow brick road. That's right.
0: So, since then, I've been following the movie in Toronto and now New York and Friday it finally opens. So I just wonder as more and more people have been seeing the movie and letting you know how much they like it, you now have a Twitter and an Instagram and people that are, and it's just flooded with compliments. And I wonder for you as a, an actress starting out, how does this make you feel?
3: It makes me feel like I, I can tell a story. I don't know, really.
0: Has life gotten any different at all? Do you still... So, um, like, right now, it's... Since uh,
3: my brother has been born, Yeah, life has been very, very different. When was different. that? January 34th. Yeah. So, it's been hard these past couple days. Just seeing videos of him, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Because you miss him.
0: But how about, like, so right now, what grade are you in? Second. Second. And do you... Go to regular school, or are you schooled at home, I'm or homeschooled. homeschooled. Okay, but I'm sure you have a lot of friends your age as well. Yeah. What's going to happen on Friday? Are they going to? What, what do you think is going to happen once people that you know start seeing this movie? Are they going to? What's their reaction going to be?
3: Well, my friends yeah. can't see it. Though. Oh, it's rated R. They're going to learn these words right. and say it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's right. So you you have to keep it a secret until they're seventeen. I can't.
3: I can't, I can't let them see it.
0: All right, only 10 more years before they can see the movie. Okay, so a lot of people really, you know, they see this movie and they love Mooney and they want her to be okay and do well and all that. What do you hope happens to Mooney? If the movie kept going, you know what I mean, instead of where it ends, what do you hope happens with Mooney?
3: I I hope that she, it's not that she um, gets to see her mom and she has a great time at Disney World and, and that she she gets a home and that her mom's better a better mom and that her life just perks up and her friends are with her and it's it's so i i hope that really happens
0: what about you are you already on to the next projects and stuff do you already know what's going to happen next for you what's going on
3: i don't know it's in god's hands Mm -hmm. you know but I want to direct a couple movies or two. I want yeah. to be the first kid director.
0: That would be cool. And is so I was going to ask you, you know, what are the things that you you dream about? So being a director, is there anything else that you w- really want to do?
3: Be in a movie with Elle Fanning.
0: That, well, that we're going to make sure she knows about that.
3: Yeah, yeah. She follows me on Instagram. So I, I, I like can, and my mom can like text her and be like, hey, and I'll be like, <laughs> hey, girl, <laughs>
0: well, last thing, I think it's it's really nice what you've done. I know that you and Sean and the whole group have been trying to highlight, I think, a certain organization that's in Hope Orlando.
3: 192.
0: Hope 192. What's that about? And why is that something you guys um, are...
3: Hope 192 is an organization yeah. for struggling families yes. like Haley and Mooney, and they just help them and give them food and all of that stuff. And You're saying,
0: like, these are what we see in the Florida Project. But they're no
3: different like us.
0: Right. So, the people that see the Florida Project should know that there are real people like Mooney, and you're so it's actually helping them too. You're going to try to help them. Yeah. That's great.
3: Yep. Fist bump.
0: Best fist bump. And thank you. You are awesome. And I think you should be very proud.
3: I'm glad you liked the movie.
0: I didn't like the movie. I love the movie.
3: Oh, <laughs> when you said it, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> why am I doing this interview? <laughs>
0: I loved it. You were great. Thanks oh, thank again. thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com
1: slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.